Well, it is a joy, and I hope that your hearts are ready to study the Word of God, because that's what I do, and I help you. And the reason I do that is because you can't apply what you don't know, and what you don't know with clarity. And so it's the job of the shepherd, when he feeds you the Word of God, to help you, to assist your comprehension in order to help in your application. So with that said, I want you to look in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 16, and verse 33. Verse 33 is the virtual end of what is called the Upper Room Discourse. Some of you know that as the Last Supper. It's the time when Jesus observed that special meal with his apostles. And you know from the book of Matthew that he actually instituted a new supper in the midst of the Last Supper. And that new supper you're very familiar with, that's the Lord's Supper. And the Lord has mandated that that would be observed in the church until the day he comes back. But if you look in John chapter 16 and verse 33, the first part of the verse says, these things I have spoken to you. And of course, the question is, what things? Well, he's referring to everything that he has communicated uh, to his apostles. And we, fortunately, have graciously recorded for us and preserved from John chapter 13 all the way to John chapter 16. And then in John chapter 17, which is oftentimes considered to be a part of the upper room discourse, you actually and literally have the prayer of Jesus Christ. Uh, some of you know the Lord's Prayer. That's a bit of a misnomer. That In Matthew, that should be described as the Lord's model of prayer. Because in John chapter 17, you do have the actual words of our Lord's Prayer. So this room, the upper room, is where this all begins, but it concludes in the Garden of Gethsemane, after which Christ would be arrested, and there would be this agony and torture that he experienced for you and I as he made his way to the cross. And I thought it might be helpful for you and I this morning to sort out some of the highlights of what Jesus said to them in this special gathering, this last gathering that he would have with them for this special meal. In John chapter 16, verse 33, the reason I had you turn there is because it's describing the purpose statement for everything Jesus said during this upper room discourse. It describes the purpose statement. Look at it once again. These things I have spoken to you, and then he describes the purpose so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Powerful, powerful words, words that you and I need today. I need these things today to comfort my heart and so do you. Take a look at some of the things that he said to them in this discourse. If you look back in John chapter 13, we're not going, going to cover it all, they don't have the time to do that. I wouldn't mind if you wanted to cover it all. We'll just order pizza and we'll be here till about three. But I'm sure that you have other plans, so I won't do that. But there's some wonderful things here that are described. Uh, during the feast of the Passover, Jesus presents to his apostles 
a very powerful principle that would literally become the hallmark of a genuine follower of Christ. He taught them that titles and various statuses in society, functional roles that reflect positions of authority and power, do not place you above performing even the most menial service for another brother. Let me say that to you again. He's going to teach them. A lot of times we get wrapped up in the foot washing part. I understand that. But you don't want to lose the principle behind what he was doing here. He was teaching them that titles and functional roles that reflect positions of power and authority do not place you above doing even the most menial task in order to serve another. And to illustrate the principle, Jesus, the Lord of all creation, the sovereign God, bends down and washes the disciples' feet. And he commands them to wash one another's feet. And he says, follow my example. Now, I want you to remember that at this time, there are 12 apostles with him, and one of them is Judas. And at this point, Christ himself washes the feet of Judas as, as, uh, as he does to the rest. Just look with me in John chapter 13, 12 through 15. He says, so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know not what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Now, I want you to get this. When he said, you call me teacher, the emphasis is, would be like this, the teacher, the ultimate teacher. That's his position. He is the teacher of all teachers, like we might say, Lord of Lords. He's teacher of all teachers. And then he's Lord, he's kurios. What does that mean? That means he is the sovereign one who has unlimited authority. No one has the authority and the power that Christ has. So that's his description of his position. That's a description of his power. But what does he do? Let's read on. He says in verse 15, or verse 14, if then the Lord and teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I did to you. So that's one of the, the things that he said. These things I have said to you. That's just one of the things that he said. It reminds me of what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, which is a correlating principle of discipleship. Here is that we're not above doing even the most menial task in the service of others. In Philippians chapter 2, he tells us that the primary perspective of every genuine believer is to place the interest of others ahead of their own. And the example for that was once again Jesus. Because Jesus in Philippians 2, he mentions he left the glory of heaven. He came to this earth. He died in our place in obedience to the Father's plan of redemption so that you and I might be saved. And that perspective is also to be our perspective Paul put it this way in Philippians 2.3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. Now this is, this is the Christian mindset. And it's a tough one for you and I to get used to. 
because it does, uh, go, goes against the grain of the culture in which we live in, which tells us that we ought to look out for ourselves. Christ is saying, no, you look out for the best interest of people, and that's some of the things that he said. Then after illustrating this truth, Jesus prophetically declares something that is going to startle the apostles and cause them to get into great conversation. He predicted that one of them would betray him, John 12, 21 through 30. And this resulted in Judas departing from the Passover supper in order to complete the betrayal process, leaving now only 11 apostles with Jesus in the room. And at that moment, Jesus knew his hour had come. His time for departing from this world was at hand. He knew he would soon surrender his life, and he would be restored to his heavenly position, being seated at the right hand of the Father, following the completion of the Father's plan of redemption. And so he gives them another principle with this in mind. He gives them what might be called the distinguishing mark of a genuine disciple. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now this love, this Christ-like love, this love is born from the will and not from the emotions. It is intentional in its purpose. It is the intentional pursuit of what is best for others and a willingness to expend your resources, no matter what that cost may be, and a willingness to remain steadfast in that love commitment, even if you get nothing in return. That's Christ-like love. You said, where'd you get that definition? I got that definition from watching God and watching Jesus love us. It was intentional. That's why it's described as a commandment. This is a very important principle that I want to make sure that you get down. Biblical love is never a victim of your emotions. It's a servant of your will. That's why it's commanded. I know in our world, we think of love in all kinds of fanciful ways. I love when I do pre-marriage counseling, I always ask the young couple, why do you want to get married? And what do they tell me? Because we're in love. And then I say, well, what does that mean? You know. No, I'm trying to ask you, what does it mean? Well, I love being with her, and she loves being with me, and we can't get off the phone from each other, and I can't wait to touch her hand. You know, all of that kind of stuff. That's nice, but that's, not, that's sort of a description of the byproducts, but it's not what real love is. It's a commitment of the will. It's a decision. It's a determination. Uh, back in my day, and I'm looking at some of the gray-haired people, you might remember this. You young people will not remember this, but there was a song that was very popular by the Righteous Brothers, and the main line in it was, you've lost that love and feeling now it's gone, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not what biblical love is. 
And Christ was saying, listen, if this is alive in the body of Christ, if you have people choosing to love one another in a Christ-like manner, it will distinguish you as a follower of Jesus. This is how you let people know in this church how you really follow Christ. It's by the exchange of love for one another. And that goes along with that first principle about not being above doing even the most menial task in the service of another. And that other principle that I shared with you, that perspective of making others first in your life, and now he's saying it's important that you love another. He made this statement in John 16, verse 28, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. Although this information was designed by Jesus to comfort the hearts of his apostles, they were perplexed. They were taken aback by this truth because they saw and they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And the first century Jews believed that when the Messiah would come, he would establish his kingdom on earth. He would vanquish Israel of all of its He would deliver them, in their case, from the oppression of the Roman government, and he would restore peace to Israel. That's what they thought. Matter of fact, the scripture, you find them saying, is this the time when you're going to enter your kingdom? Because you see what happened is they confused the purpose of the second coming of Christ with the purpose of the first coming of Christ. You see, the purpose of the first coming of Christ was not to be a king, per se, but it was to be a humble servant who would go to the cross in our behalf, who would die for our sins' condemnation, and who would provide the only means by which your soul can be saved, exclusive means by which your soul could be saved. And that is by repentance of sin and faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So they thought that this is what he would do, but he was saying, no, I am going. So in order to comfort them a little bit more, he says this, but when I go, I will not leave you as an orphan. I promise you that a helper is going to come. If you look in your Bible now at John chapter 14 and verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper and he will be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it did not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. You see, in the Old Testament ministry, the Spirit of God came upon certain people for certain perspectives or jobs. But then he could leave them at any time in the Old Testament. But there was about to be a change in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God who was with the apostles would now be in them permanently. Fifty days later, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God took up residence not only in the apostles, but every believer since then. Matter of fact, the telling sign that you are a Christian is that you have the Spirit of God in you, Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. There's no such thing as a Christian who is not born again. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the indwelling of the Spirit. I remember sitting on a plane with a guy, and 
he found out what I did, my job, and, and he said quickly to me, well, I'm a Christian, but not a born-again one. And I said, sir, there isn't any other kind. Because the new birth is when the Spirit of God imparts life eternal to your soul that was dead in its trespasses and sins. And he justifies you, declares you right standing with God. And he indwells you permanently and enables you to live the Christian life. And so the Lord promised them that the Holy Spirit would come. He would guide them into all truth. He would illuminate them to comprehend the truth. He would empower them to proclaim the truth and to live the truth. And he would come alongside them and enable them to live for the glory of God. Then they left the upper room after these words. And they made their way through the vineyard and the slopes by Mount Zion. And they'd come around to the city walls and they were now in the very shadow of the old temple. And they're about to cross over the Kidron Valley and make their way up Mount Olives into the darkness of Gethsemane's garden. And at that point, the discourse of the Lord continues. He tells his disciples that the best way to glorify God in the absence of Christ is by bearing fruit. What does it mean to glorify God? To glorify God is to, is to elevate his character in the presence of all so that it stimulates honor and reverence. And what he was saying is, you will prove to be my disciples if you bear fruit. And then he gives them what amounts to the seventh and final I am declaration. In chapter 6, he said, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, he said, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, he said, I am the door of the sheep. And then in 10 again, he said, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then finally, he said, I am the vine. And he told his disciples, you are the branches of the true vine. And they would bear much fruit. And in doing so, the Father would be honored. In John chapter 15 and verse 8, look there for just a second. He says, my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciple. What does it mean to bear much fruit? What does it mean? Well, Jesus is talking about that which is produced in the life of a genuine disciple. Now listen to this. At the point of the application of the teachings and the theology of Jesus into the context of your life. When you bear much fruit, guess what you'll do? You place the interest of others ahead of your own. If you're bearing much fruit, you're not above doing even the most menial task in the service of another believer. If you're bearing much fruit, you're loving your brothers and sisters in a Christ-like manner. And so he says, you'll bear fruit because you're rightly connected to the vine. And that's what's produced when you're rightly connected to the vine. And then finally in chapter 16, Jesus predicted his death and resurrection, the two great events of redemption. And he also predicted that all of them would soon be scattered, each to his own home, leaving Jesus 
to face the darkest hours of his earthly ministry all alone. So then the Lord concludes with John chapter 16, verse 33, with a word of hope and reality, a word of peace and tribulation, a word of agony, and yet certain victory. So all that I gave you thus far, and how am I doing on time? Oh, good. All that I gave you thus far was an introduction. And they told me I can't, I can't come back next Sunday for a part two, so I'll have to give you the rest of this. So in John chapter 16, he covers three topics. They're obvious. They're there for you to see. The first topic is that of peace. Look again at John 16:33. These things I have spoken to you. Now you've got an idea what that means. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. Peace. Jesus tells them that everything that he said to them, that entire discourse was to bring them to these realities that they would have peace in Christ. Now, by the way, in Christ is a significant description of a genuine believer. I went through the Bible and I noticed that we believers are described as being in Christ in the New Testament more than we are described as disciples and far more than we are described as Christians. The term Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. So it's right to say that the dominant title for those who are genuine believers is in What does that mean? To be in Christ is to be in the sphere, in the scope of the redeemed. To be in Christ indicates that you have a saving, life-transforming relationship with Jesus. To be in Christ means that you possess eternal life. The inextinguishable divine life of God is a present possession for those who are in Christ. John or Paul wrote in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So if you are in Christ, it means you're saved. It means that you were chosen before the foundations of the world. It means that you have been adopted into the family of God. It means that you have been redeemed by the blood, the currency of the blood of Christ. And I love this one. It means you were forgiven of your sins, past, present, and future. I don't know if that rings your bell, but if it doesn't, your clapper is broken. I am forgiven of my past, present, and future sins because I am in Christ. But what does he mean about this peace? What kind of peace does he leave us with? It comes from the Greek noun, aranae, and it describes a state of tranquility of the soul an undisturbed calmness of one's heart and mind in the midst of difficult and unfavorable circumstances. It is being at rest internally. It's a state of being unaffected by the surrounding circumstances and the perplexities and difficulties of life. Yes, it is to be calm when everything else around you is exploding. 
Sometimes the word peace in the New Testament is used to describe the absence of conflict or war, but that's not the nuance here. Sometimes peace is described as the product of having a reconciled relationship, where a relationship that was out of order has now been brought back into order and now has harmony. Paul used it in that sense when he said in, in uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That peace was the peace that the angels spoke about on the first Christmas morning. I don't want to mess up your Christmas cards, but you know where it always says peace on earth? That's not technically what the angels were talking about when they, well, talking. Some of you think they were singing, but it, it says they spoke these words. He, he, he said, they said that there would be a peace for those whom are well-pleasing to God. What was the peace he was talking about? Not between people and people and nations and nations. He was talking about peace between people and God. A holy God and sinful people. Morning, there was the birth of the Savior who would reconcile them. And so, to have peace with God enables you, now listen to this, to have the peace of God. That's what Jesus was describing, the peace of God. And he said in John chapter 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Don't let your hearts be troubled, nor let them be fearful. Uh, in our day, I'm watching a lot of even believers who are experiencing the tyranny of fear. And that means they're not tapping in to the peace of God. The peace of God makes you tranquil. It makes you in innerly, not in turmoil. I mean, I don't even care who wins the election in a couple of weeks. I still have peace with God. There's nothing that anyone can do that can remove the truth upon which this peace is based. Peace in the Bible is truth-based. What is the truth? Well, Jesus, Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the sovereign one. He has unlimited control over all things. My Lord is never in heaven. Gabriel, you've got to keep me informed. Look at this. What's going on down there? Oh, my God's in control of everything. And he works all good things to his purposes. And so this peace that Christ gives is a, listen to this, a supernatural provision of calmness of the soul. It's unlike the world. It supersedes the normal reaction to very difficult and trying situations. This is the kind of peace that our Lord gives to his people. Cindy and I saw this peace firsthand. We were newly saved, probably just months in the Lord. As our children went with us to this Baptist church that we started attending, our children became friends with some other kids, naturally, in the context of the nursery. And we became friends with the mom and dad. And unfortunately, in their home, they had a terrible fire. They had three boys. The first boy died that very night. The second boy died the next week. 
the third boy died the week after. And Cindy and I attended the funeral service. We still remember, don't we? And I was astonished by the calmness of their souls. Were they grieving? You better believe it. Was their hearts filled with agony, sorrow? No. There was calmness. There was peace. It, listen, it's a supernatural provision. It, it's unlike anything you have ever seen when this peace of God. And, and, and Jesus said it's, it's not like the world's peace. You know, historians talk about the world's peace. By the way, the world's peace is always temporary. It's always temporary. Uh, historians say in the previous 3,500 years, the world has seen less than 300 years of peace. 3,500 years. It has also been estimated that in the five and a half millennia, more than 8,000 peace treaties have been broken. More than 14,000 wars are fought with a combined total of casualties equaling four billion plus. So I found myself wondering how many balloons have been released into the sky for peace. How many marches and protests have come and gone in search of peace? How many Miss America contestants have come and gone who claim that if they won, they would be taking up the cause of world peace? Now listen, we ought to be for world peace. But never think it's like the peace of God. It's temporary. It's fragile. It has a short self-life. So Christ says in John chapter 16, these things I've come so that in me you may have peace. A calmness of the soul. A supernatural provision that keeps you above the turbulent storms of life. And I don't know about you, but that's good news. This peace is made for difficult days so that we are able to bear up under them. Well, then second of all, and this will make you glad you were here today. He says, these things I have spoken to you, that you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. In the world, you will have tribulation. Now, here's the test. What does he mean by the world? What does he mean by the world? It's just a test for you. You know, thinking about tests, I remember a story about a, a policeman who was following a guy who was driving rather erratically, and he pulled him off to the side of the road. He walked up to him, asked for his driver's license. He asked for his insurance card. And he looked in his back seat, and there were machetes. So the policeman grabbed his gun, put his hand on it, and said, Sir, you need to step out right now. And the man stepped out, and he said, What's the matter, officer? He says, Why do you have those machetes in your back seat? And he said, well, sir, I'm, I'm an entertainer. I'm a juggler. I juggle machetes. And the policeman said, yeah, sure. Right. Uh, do it for me. He said, right now, sir? He said, yeah, stand here. Get out of the way to traffic. Stand behind your car. And you juggle the machete. And so there he was. And just as he was doing it, there were two guys on their way to an AA meeting. 
And they looked out of the window, and the passenger said to the driver, Hey, John, sure good we gave up drinking. Look at the tests they give you now. I'm thankful that they don't have that kind of test. I know some intoxicated people would go ahead and take it. It'd be a terrible thing. But what does he mean by this world? He's talking about the realm of the lost. He's not talking about the planet Earth. He's talking about those who are the subjects of the God of this world. It is the world that has been directly impacted by sin and all that that sin produces in that world. And you and I are in it, but Jesus said we must never be of it. He said in this world, in this sphere of sinfulness and fallenness, you will have tribulation. The Greek word philipsis is translated tribulation, and it describes a state of distress, an oppressive state of physical, mental, social, and economic adversity. It's upheaval, the, the, the total opposite. What I described to you before was peace. This would be the opposite. I thought to myself, boy, that sounds so much like the present state of what we see here. And I also found it interesting that the verb tense here is indicative. In other words, what he's saying is here is a statement of fact. In this world, you will have tribulation. Now, how many of you know that this is not heaven? Yeah, I'm glad to see it. It is not heaven. It is a fallen place. And we have tribulation. Why is that? Because we have in this world, the God of this world, who is the avowed enemy of all of those who are the children of God. He seeks to remove your trust in the person, promise, and provisions of God in the midst of trying times especially. He's an enemy who knows that he can do nothing to remove your eternal life but he does everything he can to ruin your testimony. So he sets out to ruin that. He sets out to remove your faith, to trouble your soul, to keep you from the peace that is yours in Christ. And fill it instead with turmoil, worry, oppressive worry, and governing fear. He works to get you to buy into the values of a fallen culture and to give yourself to the pursuit of the objectives of the world rather than accomplish the objectives of his church in the world. And the best way, the Bible says, to resist him is to stand firm on the faith. That is the battle stance of the believer. We're not to attack Satan. We're not to change Satan. We are to stand firm on the faith. That doctrine, that belief that emerges from Scripture, all of those teachings that are precious to us, we are to know them. We are to have a workable knowledge of them. They are to be the source of our discernment in a fallen world. Boy, do we ever need discernment. Biblical discernment. Feeding your souls on the Word of God so that you're ready to deal with error when it comes to you, and it will come to you. And in addition to him, we have our own flesh to contend with. 
if you're redeemed, that's marvelous, your soul is redeemed, but your soul is incarcerated in a body in which there is the principle of sin. Paul and others describe it as the flesh. What is that? It is a proclivity. It is a bent toward rebellion and sin, even as a believer. You understand that we entered this world with the imputed sin of Adam, so we're sinners by nature, we're sinners by practice. When you go to pick up that little baby in the pink or blue blanket, blanket, just understand that they're sinners ready to happen. Because all people are like that. And so you have to fight even your own unredeemed flesh in this battle. And then the believers must live, as I mentioned, in this fallen world. You have a lot of things that work against your position in Christ. You have a lot of things that want to move you away from faith in the Word of God. We have a culture in which we live in currently, in a political system, in social turmoil. We have a culture and political parties that stand, listen, in opposition to, to human life, who think that they're sovereign over life, Marriage, the first institution God created, the Supreme Court decided that they would change the definition. Morality, justice, truth, and the human race. Are, they're turned upside down, convoluted by the world in which we exist. Let me show you one passage from John chapter 15 as I'm making my way here. John chapter 15 verses 18 and 19. He says, if the world hates you, and again, he's not talking about the world, planet Earth, or basically all of humanity, but those committed unbelievers who function under the rule of the God of this world. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. So Jesus says, you want to know who the true haters are? They're the ones who hated me first. And they're the ones who hate those who belong to God, who stand in opposition to God, and fight him vehemently. So the world is that ordered system of thinking that comes from fallen people. And here's a very important thing about the world. Get this down if you didn't get anything down. The younger folks, you may want to have this embroidered and put on your wall in your dorm. That's how good this might be. I'm building it up. I hope it's that good. <laughs> Here's something that's true. This is true of the fallen world. The fallen world is dedicated to making sin normal and righteousness strange. It will always do this. It's always looking for ways to provide a rationale that enables people to engage their fleshly desires, their sinful passions, with no limitations. Matter of fact, in this world, we'd like even governments to sanction us in our sin. And so we have the world making sin normal and righteousness strange. So Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. Another reason you have tribulation is natural evil. One commentator defined natural evil 
as an impersonal, external, physical, temporal evil in the form of diseases and disasters and catastrophes, the kinds of things that come from uh, the physical world under the curse. We have some of our brothers and, and sisters and some of our fellow citizens down south right now experiencing natural evil. Hurricane Delta. Why do we have this in the world? Because the world's a fallen place. And natural evil is there from tiny bacteria to tidal waves, from viruses to volcanoes. The whole natural world is blighted by bad things, things that make people sick, things that injure you, and things that will kill you. So Christ is so right when he says, in this world, you have tribulation. That's why you need the peace. Do you understand that? You, go like this with your head. That's good. Some of you were already doing that before I even got to this point. I saw you. You're going like this. No, no. Yeah, that, that's why you need the peace. You need the peace. Because we're in a world that's filled with tribulation. The last thing he said in John 16:33, he said, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Take courage. This is the only command here. This is it. Take courage. I command you, take courage. Or the ESV has take heart. Or the NSV, NIV has the same thing. It's an imperative. It's a command. And the word courage there, thorso, describes an attitude of confidence or assurance in spite of the outward circumstances and the fears and the apprehensions that they may produce. Be confident. Be confident. You have a God who has a purpose for you that the Bible describes as good, and you're moving toward it every day. And nothing in this world can change that. Your position in Christ will not change on November 3rd. Your, your, your demands of Christ on your life to go and bring that gospel to the whole world will not change. Your destiny will not change. Nothing that anybody can do to you on planet Earth will change your destiny. What's your destiny? There's a day coming when Christ will come to gather his church and he'll take you and you'll be with him. You'll be with him forever. And thank God he'll give us a brand new body. Thank God. You know why? Because this body is not equipped to live forever. You need one that's equipped to live forever. I'm so thankful for that because I know that this body is not equipped forever. Teeth that are presently with the Lord. <laughs> Nothing I could do. I have furniture disease. My has fallen into my drawers. But you could tell I'm on the level because the bubble's in the center. It's all good jokes. Use them. So take courage. The Lord says he's overcome the world. How did he do that? By his death, by his resurrection, by his ascension to the right hand of the Father. He's overcome the world. What does overcome mean? It comes from a Greek word, nakio. Some of you are more familiar in its transliterated form. Some of you wear it on your hats, on your shorts, and on your shirts. Nike. Nakio. 
What does that mean? It means to have a victory. It means to overcome an enemy, to conquer, to vanquish, to ultimately destroy all opposition. Jesus said, I have overcome the world. And if you're a believer, you have overcome the world. 1 John chapter 5, 4 through 7, or 4 through 5 says, For whatever is born of God, whatever is born again, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If you believe in who Christ is and all that he is, then you, my friend, are an overcomer of this world. You're an overcomer of its thought system, its values, its priorities. You don't have to buy into it. Listen, the world can't send me, or sell me, I should say, the world can't sell me a different formula of salvation. I don't care what they tell me. Because I know that there's only one exclusive formula. And that is that you must repent of your sins. Uh, repent of your sins means a radical or U-turn in your thinking. Uh, gentlemen, if your wife ever says, um, do I look fat in this dress? And you say yes. Repent. Change your thinking. Your day's going to be bad. Do a radical U-turn in your thinking. And believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in him and him only, and you'll be saved. And by the way, there's only one way to be saved in all the world. God doesn't have a lot of different options. There's one exclusive way. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. I don't like the idea that there's only one way. But that's, that's God's provision. There's only one way. You know what I'm very happy about? When I go to land in Lambert Airfield, the, uh, you know, the tower, and they tell them very specifically one way to land the plane. I'm so glad that they don't say, listen, there are many ways to land the plane. There's only one way to be saved, and that is by faith in Christ. So, man, I'm sorry, I'm over time, but let me just ask you this. Are you in Christ? You see, being in Christ is the pathway to the peace you need. Why do you need it? This world, this world's a troubled place. Turn on your TV right after church. Turn it on. Any news station. This is a troubled place. You need the peace of God. And you need the confidence, the conviction, the courage. By the way, courage is doing what is right even though you have apprehensions. And even though you have fears, you continue to do what is right. You may have apprehensions, you may have fears, but you constantly trust in the person, promise, and the provisions of God to see you through this crazy world. Are you in Christ? That's a big, big one. Here's one other one, and I'll, i got to finish. Our worldview, values, morality, and theology must not come from contemporary culture. These important matters are to be shaped by the written word of God while we're in the world. We are to practice spiritual distancing. Ever hear that? At the same time, we are to reach out to those who do not know Christ with the gospel message. But that reaching out is this. It's a, it's a contact without contamination. 
We are not to buy into the world system. We're to have connection with people of the world so we can sell them the gospel. No, but we might present the gospel. That's all we can do. In evangelism, you're not responsible for its success. In evangelism, you're responsible to be faithful and proclaim the gospel. It's God who's responsible for success. Always keep that in mind. I have never, in my power, led anybody to Christ. In my power. But when I proclaim the gospel message, the power of the gospel is unleashed and God takes a person who is dead in their trespasses and sin. That's what Ephesians 2.1 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You know what dead means in the Greek? Dead. And then God quickened you to life, miraculously, in the hearing of the gospel. Well, I got a whole lot of more, but I'm going to have to stop right here. Um, let's pray together. Let's do that. Well, gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for these comforting words that you, Jesus, gave to your disciples, and you have so carefully preserved them in Scripture that we can use them to live. Thank you so much for that. We need this information, Lord, desperately, and may we apply what we've learned today that we can have peace if we're in Christ, even in the midst of a world filled with tribulation. And because you're a conqueror, we have been made conquerors of this world. We don't have to live in submission to it. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.